Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night, wherever you are around the world, and welcome to another episode of Endurance Chat. I am Michael Salvari, also known as Flightman11, and this evening I have got with me Cookie Monster FL, also known as Austin Zetsman. Good evening, Austin. How are you? Doing all right, Mike. It's a little bit warm in uh, in the apartment here, but, uh, you know, is what it is on a, in a warm February here in Florida. Uh, just gearing up for what will be a, an American leg of endurance championships i guess in the next couple of months and next month i'll say yeah uh, coming up it's very very soon we have the wec uh six hours of circuit of the americas followed by the super sebring weekend a fortnight after that but before we get to that uh you were very recently well firstly you very recently celebrated a birthday so happy birthday cookie Ah, uh, thank you. Cheers, cheers, everyone. I appreciate that. Uh, and on top of that, you were also at Daytona for the twenty-four hours of Daytona. Um, you went along. Is this your second year going to Daytona? Ah, uh, yes. First, uh, first full twenty-four hour race I've actually attended this year since uh, I'll asterisk uh, last year. I mean, I think we did. I think we did stay the entire twenty-four hours, but it was red flag and there was no racing, so I wouldn't count that. So this year, uh, not even a question. Uh, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt, um, the uh, all the cars pretty much just crushed uh, the overall lap record there. So it was, um, it definitely was a historic, uh, however you want to, you know, interpret that meaning. But it was technically historic uh, this race this year. So, but yeah, it was. Um, I, I enjoyed it. I mean, I'll take the extra seven hours of racing, however much it was that we were uh, red flag for, and actually got green flag racing this year. So, uh, nice. But it was it was awesome. The infield was uh, where we kind of hung out this year for the most part. Um, the concourse is still a journey, um, even if you're staying in the infield. But uh, man, I it's it is it's insane mm-hmm. um, just to kind of camp out of the infield, uh, especially for like three days straight, um, and then uh, to kind of go to sleep. Getting kind of like the bowl of sound surrounding you for you know five five hours or so. I got pretty good sleep. I'll say that. For oh well, wow. that's yeah. I'm I'm jealous of that. That's crazy. Because uh, like you, I you sent me a, a a video of you guys sitting around a campsite with literally just the bowl of sound around you. That like that looked awesome. That looked absolutely cool. Yeah, stereo surround. Uh, I mean, yeah, pretty much turned up. As as loud as you could, you really couldn't uh, turn it down at all. But you didn't you didn't really need to. And uh, hospitality was great. Um, I think a lot of the OEMs and uh, and and different kind of track official series they've they've really uh, turned up the wick a little bit when it comes to um, listening to fan feedback or at least like trying to supply the fans with things to do things to sign up for even things to purchase that kind of thing like it was nice. you could definitely feel that it's it's getting you know, higher and higher up in terms of scale cool and uh and an effort so very, nice very that's cool. that's really really cool to hear um another thing that was really cool to hear is that you actually met up with another one of our endurance chatters uh chris chris washer who unfortunately couldn't be here tonight we were meant to have him on as well um for bants but uh life has gotten in the way yet again uh how was how was catching up with chris Oh, it's great. Because he's also from great. Wisconsin, isn't he? He is. He is. We uh, we shared a couple stories, um, you know, inside tales that no one else would get. Um, About cheese and beer. <laughs> cheese and beer. <laughs> <laughs> and the Packers. Uh, but yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was great to see him uh, and to meet him. I mean, to be honest, uh, we've shared, you know, microphones 
um, online so much doing podcasts and doing, you know, a lot of the different stuff around the subs. So uh, his kind of online presence has always been felt by me for, you know, almost God, last five years or yeah. more. So it's uh, it, it was a really it was a great pleasure to meet him and uh, got a couple of pictures. So I, I can't wait to hopefully uh, hopefully see him at some point, maybe in Road America or something like that, because he went uh, last year and is hoping to go this year to a couple of other events. So but yeah, it was it's great. And uh, it's really great that we can kind of keep, you know, the uh, <laughs> the chain going in terms of everybody meeting each other. So because uh, uh, Kiwi Chris is running away with it so far yeah well he he because he went over to daytona last year didn't he and he went to the bend this year so we caught up with him again this uh at the age of the one series so yeah kiwi chris i think out of out of everyone has done the most meeting of the redditors at this stage so good work kiwi. like a travel award like a traveler's award <laughs> we're just like the, the 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 brotherhood of the traveling redditors yeah, yeah, exactly. Like you, you verified meeting like X amount. You get a, you get some, some unique or whatever. God, that'd be funny. Mm, no, nah, okay, back to the racing, please. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, it might have just been me, but I didn't really get super hyped for the Daytona weekend. It might have been because I had other things going on and was in the midst of looking ahead to Bathurst, and it was also Australia Day. But for me, I was, I was a little. Not put off, but it was it was kind of lower on my personal radar this year. How was the mood at the track? Uh, because we saw a few unique things this year's Daytona. We saw the longest green flag running in the Daytona 24 Hours history, which may have been a result of the smallest entry list in the Daytona 24 Hours history. Uh, yeah, from from your perspective at the track, was there that air of lacking around the track or was it just that was the event that we got yeah i, w- I would i would say so um the um, the amount of the, the lack of drivers uh or the potential for issues or something like that to go on track or um i mean you know what if you reduce the grid count by one there is going to be that a reduced amount of storylines to write about going into the weekend so yep. obviously with this being the lowest grid count in x amount of years I, mean, I I don't think I, I want to say that it's the lowest grid count, not of all time, but it's it's something like that. Like it is it's, the lowest grid count of all time. I think we checked it before the event. So yeah, so I cars. mean that yeah, uh, thirty nine I think, and then one withdrew. Yep. So yes, there's that's definitely going to weigh into it, and I def and I do think the uh, you know the more open real estate that these cars have when they're navigating kind of does help them not to run off track. Um, the lack of any weather, uh, any major weather to really hit the cold temperatures, I think, um, you know, didn't really catch anybody out too. I, I thought we were going to see it. Well, I mean, I mean, we did, we did see some off tracks, Yeah. but I, I think the strength of the cars at this point, I mean, they're, they're tackling a lot of the pitfalls that you'd normally see. I mean, even 10 years ago, 15 years ago with some of these cars at Daytona, you're not seeing them, and a lot of this is probably due to driver caliber, team caliber, maybe even the cars themselves. So it, it doesn't surprise me, but, I mean, still, at the end of the day, it's a 24-hour race, so you, you don't know. Um, and it just ended up being one of those things where it was like, yeah, I, it, this is going to be the uh, the longest-running green flag and the longest you know race in Daytona Rolex 24 history. So, 
that just kind of boils down to it. So I, I don't know if you can completely blame it 100% on that. I, I think the driver caliber, too, mm. is really is really high. Even LMP2 with the increased car count had really good driver lineups, and even the uh, AMs weren't that bad. The GTD didn't have any, like, uh-oh, like, watch yourself kind of yeah. uh, AM drivers that we're used to seeing. So this is just a really, really polished field, even from the AMs to the pros. So, um and it kind of yeah. it, it kind of speaks to the quality of the event and the sort of drivers it now attracts uh, because you know it was only three or four years ago where we had the prototype challenge class which was an absolute meme fest and people were maybe expecting the same thing from LMP2 but we didn't get that the LMP2 cars seemed you know a lot more grounded I mean you know the LMP2 class from a racing product wasn't actually that great because we had, you know, two cars run away at the head of the field and then one of them encounter an issue. And then it was like, okay, well, I guess, I guess the class has already won then. And that was about halfway through. Uh, but yeah, on the whole, it looks like the driver quality has just taken another step up, which means that, yeah, we don't really see all that variance anymore. And on top of that as well, the, the like the, the caution rules when they do pop up, it kind of ge- gives people like that free kick to get back into things, um, which is, I think, how we ended up with three cars on the lead lap at the end of the race in DPI. Uh, another Cadillac win, uh, stretching their streak now to four since the dawn of the uh, DP era. Um in fact, I think the last non-Cadillac to win was Pipo Durrani in the Extreme Speed Motorsports Ligier uh, that year that Correct. he just announced himself to the world, yeah, um, and gave, who was it, Ed Brown, a, a one-lap Rolex? Yeah, that was it. They, they installed him for one lap yeah. uh, during caution, and that was it. I think they win, uh, didn't they win Sebring too? They year? won Sebring in basically the same circumstances. A late safety car puts Pipo Durrani behind the wheel and he destroyed the field. So, uh, yeah, very, <laughs> that's, that's a bit of IMSA trivia for you. But yeah, at the end of the day, we had uh, the number 10 car taking the win. Briscoe, Scott Dixon, Kobayashi and Renga van der Zander ahead of the number 77 Mazda DPI of Oliver Jarvis, uh, Tristan Nunez and Olivier Pla. And then also on the lead lap was the number Number five action, oh, not Action Express, JDC Miller Mustang sampling Cadillac with Jao Barbosa, Sebastian Bourdais, and Loic Duval. They really struck away from the field uh, during the middle of the race, and in the end, I don't think anyone got close to touching the number 10. Like, they, they had a drive time penalty, they had a uh, sorry, not drive time penalty. They had a pit lane speed penalty and another thing go wrong in the middle of the night, and they just still powered away from everyone. Oh yeah, I think if you could, if you could say, give me an obvious fact, Austin, of this year's Rolex Twenty Four, it would be the Cadillac DPI is so overpowered when it comes to racing at Daytona. Mm. It's not even funny. Um, it, it's almost like worse than the Arecas because at least the Arecas, I mean, on a on an off day, those things can actually be reeled in, and the Liches or Delars can sort of maybe. I mean, it it is kind of similar in in a, those respects, but I, I mean, but at it Daytona, just seems like at Daytona, it's just the Cadillacs are in complete control, and yeah. I, I don't know if it's a powertrain, if it's the ICE, uh, or in terms of the powertrain um, transmission wise. However, they have this; like it's just dominant and i i mean it, it seems evident coming off of the um the infield section going on to uh, nascar turn one um and the way that they're able to eat some of the bumps in the uh 
in the horse uh, in the um, bus stop too as well. That that car is just really really well suited for Daytona, and it's just going to continue winning until the category changes. Really, mm. um, I because I just don't yeah. I, I just don't see where Mazda improves enough, and you know because their car is just going to explode if it goes any faster. It almost seems like. Well, they did get a car to the finish this year, which is an achievement for them, uh, quite literally, because in the last few years at Daytona, their cars have ended up on fire. Um, what about the the Acura as well? The lead Acura was the number six car that finished fourth, which was five laps down. Uh, yeah, what about Acura's challenge? Because they were looking like maybe uh, one of the best chances to challenge the Cadillacs because they're you know based on the Orica platform. They have a similar-sized engine, so they're using more of that sort of low-end torque that the Cadillacs are very well-renowned for. They, they ran into problems, though, in the middle of the race, didn't they? They did. I mean, I wouldn't categorize them as being really a challenger. I mean, what, I mean, I, I guess they were, but whenever I was noticing them, they were not really. They were sort of there uh, when it kind of came to, you know, pace wise with either when the Cadillac was leading or the Mazda was leading. I mean, there was times, yeah, where they, I think the Acura did lead, but um, when they weren't leading, they weren't really kind of maintaining the gap. They were falling a little bit behind. But one of them definitely went out early, um, and to their, I guess, my, I guess, sympathetic understanding, uh, they were rightfully upset that uh, the 55 didn't receive a more harsh punishment for essentially knocking them out of the race at the uh, at the bus stop. Um, mm, yeah, I, I don't know. They uh, the punishment kind of did fit the crime. They uh, they self inflicted a bunch of damage on their own car, suffered a tire failure. So I mean. Yeah, it's uh, it is unfortunate with the number seven, but I don't know. I mean, uh, that's that's endurance it, racing, right? Cause yeah, sort of. I mean, it, it shouldn't be beat, you know, fenders fenders off NASCAR beat and banging that kind of thing. But at the same time, I mean, they with these Mazdas, I mean, that could have been a death knell in itself. They could yeah. have easily just destroyed the suspension. So I, I, you know, I'm fine with how the punishment was done, and I know a lot of the Acura drivers were not happy with how that went down, especially when their car was out officially. They're like, well, the 55 is literally at minus a lap or was almost back on the lead lap. And they were pretty puzzled as to why that, you know, how their luck went the opposite way of the 55 for essentially yeah. what was the 55's fault. So, but I don't know. I, I, I think it was a Mazda versus cadillac and by you know late night it was still kind of looking like maybe mazda was holding on to it they had alternate pit stops that kind of stuff but they just had some little issues here or there that kept them in the pits and the number 10 just was flat was better fantastic was better yeah. yeah uh something that we noticed uh in the voice chat when i was ducking into it uh just as daybreak was happening was uh ring of Zander, his happy hour stint in that morning session his slowest, uh, 35.3, his slowest lap time was faster than everyone else's average lap time for that period of the race. They He basically broke the back of that race in the morning hour and then threw it all away when he got a drive-through penalty for pit lane speeding and then Briscoe just got in and did the same thing. So they really, as as the track evolved, they were the ones who really kept up with it. And yeah, it took a well-deserved victory. Like you can't say that it wasn't well-deserved uh, because they were just the best drivers over the weekend and the best car over the weekend. Um, it is a little, 
I want to say it's a little boring to see Cadillac win again, but you're kind of coming to Daytona now going, okay, Cadillac's going to win. Because <laughs> it's Daytona. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. The, yeah, I mean, the intelligent pick would be to continue choosing Cadillac. And I mean, why would you bet against the number 10? Uh, especially when it seems like that team really all is in for the Rolex 24. Yeah. They really try for the you know, 12. They're really NEC. I mean, yes, they are going for the championship, but they for sure light a fire under their drivers and that team, uh, especially for this race. Because um, you could just, uh, it, there's a lot of Wayne Taylor that trans that that flows through that team. You could just kind of see his his personality through how yeah. that team you know gels and competes. So yeah, they um and they deserve the win. I mean, hundred yeah, <laughs> percent. Totally. I mean, you know, beyond that, the second place would have been Mazda, and that's where they finished. So. Yeah. Uh, so, we'll look a bit further afield through the DPI class. Uh, we mentioned that the number five Mustang sampling JDC Miller car finished in third, which was a little bit of a surprise, but not really when you thought about it. Like, it was basically the same driver lineup as last year, but with the JDC Miller crew, which have taken wins in IMSA before um prior to switching over to the dpi chassis so it was a great result for them uh the number 85 finished fifth which was the am jdc miller car um so a decent result you know you know finishing eight laps off the pace the the first of the guys that didn't have really big problems and um, then we mentioned the number 55 had that issue uh with the acura uh they finished sixth the number 31 car which i picked as the potential race winner ended up finishing 11 laps down um for the action express team which was annoying for my fantasy wec uh and then uh rounding out dpi class was the number seven acura who did suffer that big amount of damage um in that incident with the number 55 uh mazda um any other surprises in the dpi class i think the 31 having a bad race was a bit of a surprise to me um and the yeah, I was not expecting the um, Mustang sampling car, even with that driver lineup, to have the team, like the back end expertise, to be able to challenge for the win like they did. Um, I mean, I'll disagree with say the five. Yes, from what the JDC Miller was saying, that they said that they needed a year to figure it out, and at the end they started to figure it out, and they have now more technical resources. They just added, you know, a winning formula from AXR. So they were saying that they were going to be up to speed. So the five kind of makes sense. And they weren't showing pace early on. The 31 being so far off the pace makes no uh, sense to me. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm pretty sure they had some sort of issue, but they weren't ever at the top Um, of it either. Yeah. I mean, the, oh, I guess it was the number eight that uh, maybe crashed out. If I'm thinking correctly, I, I can't remember who, uh, which, which Acura took the beating. Looks like it would have been the number seven. Maybe they weren't out for it. Okay, never mind. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I thought I thought they would completely crash out. They did not. But um, yeah, I mean the Acura is the 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 number six kind of was eh, all, all right there. They had some issues. Um, but yeah, I mean it it really didn't surprise me in DPI at all. And um, I, I thought it was either going to be Cadillac or maybe Mazda if just Mazda was going to outpace everybody, but it was clear kind of that they were, they were kind of outpacing people a little bit on strategy and, uh, you know, traffic management a bit. So yeah, it just, it just seemed like that was Cadillac's race to lose at that point. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, they, they went ahead and won it. Uh, so Cadillac are now leading the DPI class in the championship, of course, being the only race. The next race for IMSA is 
the the twelve hours of Sebring. Um, so we'll talk a bit about that. Uh, not in this episode, in the next episode, because we've got a WEC race in between that. Um, we'll jump over to LMP2. Uh, we briefly mentioned that there was basically a two-horse race, and then one of those horses died. So it was really a one-horse race for the second half of the race, and the class win went away of the Dragon Speed USA car of Ben Hanley, Henrik Hedman, uh, Colin Braun, and Harrison Newey. So not at all surprising, really. I think we picked them as one of the two major players, um, and the other one was the car that had problems, uh, which was... Was, I think, let me just find it. It was the, uh, do it was the Keating car, wasn't it? No, no, it was a tower, tower motorsports by Starworks, which ended up having the problems with a water pump. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Did you like, I didn't really pay too much attention to the LMP2 class. It was just kind of there. Is that a problem for IMSA or do we need to be paying more attention to it? Or do we uh, not need yeah. to? Um, I mean, it, it is, it's a problem for IMSA because they can't get anybody from Prototype Challenge to jump into LMP2. And I think LMP, uh, the Le LMP3 or Prototype Challenge, you know, has kind of plateaued a little bit on their car counts. Not to say that it needs to be any higher or that it really, there is a really healthy ecosystem for it to drive, but. Uh, I mean, that's kind of where you want to see some growth and health. And right now, I mean, it's a lot of big name amateur drivers, international status that yeah. are kind of floating in between this class to really get cars there because there's an opportunity to win the Rolex watch. So um, does it need more carrots or does it need a complete retooling or is this more of just put more fertilizer down? I, I Huh, I, I don't know. Yeah, um, pretty much. Because, well, the, the problem, too, is that there isn't a... I mean, the Riley was the American chassis manufacturer that was supposed to be, you know, the ACO's tie-in to, okay, this is a, this is a quote-unquote global manufacturer structure for LMP2. Now that they've got Janetta replacing Riley in the next stage, no, you don't, don't have... They still don't. No. no. Um, that was announced uh, with the LMP. LMP3. Yeah, that's, that's LMP3. Yeah. They're gonna, they're gonna take over for LMP2. Is that that's what that's the thing I keep hearing? No. Uh, they actually announced at Daytona when they announced the LMDH convergence class, um, which we will talk about in a future episode. Uh, we still are wrapping our head around that. They announced that it would stay. The LMP2 tenders would stay with the same four manufacturers. So even though the Riley has not actually raced in three years or something, it's still going to be part of the new LMP2 regulations. Um, so, yeah, who, who knows what's going right, on. I'm going to have yeah. to reread that because that, that doesn't make any sense. I know, right? Uh, it makes no sense. Would that be Riley like, making the chassis or Multimatic making the chassis? Probably the latter, I would have to say, because like, what has Riley done with that chassis besides give it to Multimatic who gave it to Mazda? I mean, all right. There, there could be different ways to interpret that. I, I, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, okay. I mean, if that's if that's the same, then yeah, I guess there's three. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I have a problem with it because LMP2 is strangled at this point. Mm. In, mean, in IMSA competition, yeah. And that goes in the face of all of the fantastic racing we've seen in LMP2 around the world in ACO competition, including the European Le Mans series and the Asian Le Mans series and the WEC, where the LMP2 class is often the class of the race. Well, I mean, it is it, it is for all the reasons why it's not working really in the US, which is that you, you have a lot of interested 
uh, amateur drivers that are willing to go out there to compete, uh, you know, with a carrot dangled in front of them to spend the money necessary to get these cars on the grid. Mm. And the amount of money that they have to spend in the U.S. is a lot higher. The, the championship itself is a lot longer and has this almost NASCAR as aspect where we have like four to five different championships. So you can almost say that it's watered down or the product itself could, you know, you could enter this thing, that thing, this thing, that thing. Mm. And I, I, I don't know. Like they, yeah. they've tried a bunch of different stuff. Um, I think we're, we're doing the best we can with it. Um, I think LMP 2.0, when that comes out with three to four new manufacturer models will help maybe potentially if they're all close. Um, but the interest has to come somewhere from the US yeah. and right now I just don't see it. And why would an amateur driver in the US build an LMP2 to race in IMSA in a like backwater class so to speak where they get no coverage when they can just as easily put together a GTD team race against a bunch of other experienced amateurs get TV time and then also use that car in like SRO GT World Challenge America or any other GT3 event that they want to. Well, correct. Um, yeah. And I think also the thing is, is that there's, there's there's just not enough interest to actually do this. I mean, mm. if, if you offered an auto invite to the first two NAEC finishers and then one to the overall championship calendar winner, you know, that might get specific entries to have to go back and forth like this G Drive, you know, entry for Asian Law Series where they're they're gunning for a specific thing and mm. they want to win it for a specific goal like give them some goal to get other than just hey you want to be lmp2 imsa champions like that's not really going to cut it even though you know you, if you do if you do well you are probably going to get an auto invite to go to lamont but the way that they do that too is that it's just it's the driver so yeah i mean it's the single driver not the team you're, you're not even how, like you're basically saying we don't, you know, American teams aren't important because we want the American amateurs or we want the amateur drivers competing in the IMSA championship. But we kind of, you know, the randomness of it all in the Asian Law Series and European Law Series, we don't really care what the nationality is. For the IMSA, yeah. you kind of want the nationality to be Canada, American, Mexico, yeah. U.S., something like that. You want them to be American. Yeah. That's just, this isn't going to help at all. This isn't set up to help at all right now. Yeah, and of the of the teams in the LMP2 class, Dragon Speed USA is run by a Swedish guy uh, in Heinrich Hedman. Uh, PR1 Math- uh, Matheson Motorsports was funded by uh, Ben Keating for the weekend, which actually is an American, you know, American team. They had uh, who else? Uh, Nicol- uh, Nicolas Bull? Nicholas Bull? Uh, Boulet? I don't know how to say that properly. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and Simon Trummer. So, you know, a, a group of Americans in there. Um, ERA Motorsports, I have no familiarity with them before, but they didn't seem American. So, uh, it was all, there, there was an American flavor there, but it was still very much international. Like, all the big name drivers, you know, the, the, the Ben Hanley's, the Gabriel Aubrey's, the Nicola Manassians, the uh, David... Uh, well, I mean, the most American... Well, even that one had Nicola Lapierre in the Tower Motorsports car. So, you know, that's it's still that international flavor. And on top of that as well, if the ACO awards a P2 auto entry to the P2 class in IMSA, what about the DPI class? Like, that's, that's kind of an undercut, right? 
Just like, hey, compete in LMP2, you get an auto-invite when the overall class isn't even going to get that at all. So, yeah, weird weird situation for the P2 class to be in in IMSA. I mean, that's that. I think they have to. DPI has no meaning or no basis to go there at all for no yeah. for any reason, and they would automatically decline it anyway because they there's they would want the drivers to be racing in their specific OEM badge, exactly. whatever. So, but I mean, with the LMP2, they they can definitely throw more auto invites at it, and I think that would get that would stimulate a little bit more. And then maybe this this is a let's see what happens. Let's see if anything starts to cultivate and grow, and you start to get competing teams that want to that want to keep doing this year and year out because they have a a goal oriented aspect yep. then maybe but until then I, I don't know this is a weird weird spot for lmp2 and it's not getting any better mm, yeah i agree uh randolph lmp2 the winners were the number 81 dragon speed usa car followed by the pr1 Mathiasen motorsports number 52 then the number 18 ERA Motorsports or Aero Motorsports, and then the Tower Motorsports by Starworks car with the uh, Performance Tech car, um, the Spine guys uh, not running at the end, many, many laps down. We'll move on to GTLM, and it really became a race in two, well, two brands, that is, uh, towards the end of the race. Um, we had the, the Porsche GT team with their new for 2019 uh, RSR, the t- 2019 WEC Championship, uh, in a very, very strong position up against the BMW M8 GTE of the number 24 car was the one that really held the torch at the end of the race um, alongside the two brand new Corvettes and the Rizzi Ferrari. Now, I want to skip the results for a second and just talk about Rizzi. What happened to that Ferrari between the Raw and the race? I... Uh... I made temperature differences, maybe. Um, car it, balance. It did also get some. smashed by BOP. <laughs> I mean, it did. It did definitely get hit, but I, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I, I I want them to do okay, but it's 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 clear that you are not going to get. Uh, you're not going to get an accurate portrayal um of bop if you're not competing fully and all the time and honestly it it seems like you need two cars to really hammer down a a very accurate bop for yourself and or i should say excuse me a very consistent bop for yourself because it certainly seems that reezy are getting shafted a lot but they are getting gifted some Mm. and it is you know it's it's hard for me to get upset about their you know their lack of pace when they have been granted some pace and other opportunities too i, I mean like i i, I don't know it, like, it is a they're in between a rock and a hard place yeah, yeah. like road, road atlanta you could almost say it was too far the other way where they had pace that none of the other teams seemed to have and they were basically gifted that race admittedly they still did have to go on out and win it you know you, you, the matter the performance matters on the day but yeah, they had something over everyone else in the class, whereas this time they had something less than everyone else in the class. Like uh, I remember James Collado, who I think maybe gets a bad rep with BOP. He seems to like to talk about it and everyone likes to twist his words and get quotes from him to really ramp up the, the BOP debate. Um, but he basically said, we're slower than GTE cars out of some of these corners. And yeah yeah they were um admittedly they did finish many laps down and not running at the end of the race but it they from the very outset they were nowhere absolutely nowhere yeah and it's it's becoming a almost normal saga to talk about their 
uh, lack of pace or their, you know, you know, unexpected gain gaining pace, that kind of thing between rounds. But just just kind of seems to be what what the deal is, especially when they're only competing now two to three races, mm. three to four races a year. They're and that must really make it tr- so not. much more difficult as well. Oh yeah, I mean it. Yeah, I mean it's it's a lot tougher to sell. I mean, how much of this is genuinely now being is on the back of, um, you know, the Rizzi ownership themselves, and especially he himself and his uh, internal funding of the team. So, but they, you know, they are getting the blessing of Marinello when it comes to drivers and this kind of stuff. And it, you know, they're they're not complaining about not receiving parts yada yada so this doesn't seem to be a case of that it's just they're not getting enough funding or they're not raising enough investments for them to run the whole season and i think that kills them um and and then on top of that i think the lack of a second car absolutely kills them when it comes to uh a representation uh represent uh represent representative of the yeah (laughs) but i think uh, i mean it does genuinely hurt them when it comes to how they're portrayed in the class yeah. uh, on BOP tables. Uh, more, you know, want more data points. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they did not have a good weekend. They finished well off the pace uh, and not running at the end of the race anyway. Now, what about Corvette? First debut of the new C8.R, uh, the mid-engined Corvette. Uh, how do you how do we rate their performance? They took home a fourth place. Uh, with the number three Garcia, Jordan Taylor, Nikki Katzberg car, and then the other car suffered issues and ended up finishing 372 laps down on the race winners, <laughs> which is a bit. I think it had gearbox issues or something like that. It was definitely something wrong with that car for a long period of time. How do we rate their first foray into long form endurance racing with the new Corvette? Um, standard affair for any car that is getting, uh, you know, its first race under its under its belt. Yeah. So I would I would say that it seems almost par for the course because they're switching to a completely different um, layout. So therefore, you're going to have um, potential for gearbox issues, transmission problems, whatever. Um, that actually did cause the uh, uh, one of the cars to to drop out. But no, I think I think it was a fine outing. Mm. Um, Porsche showed a better outing. I, I think it's. I think I think you can say that that's a new car uh, with a 911, whatever the 2020 version of it. 911 um, RSR-19 is how it's officially named. And remember, it's ah. while it's not the first outing for that car ever, because um, it has been racing WEC. It is the first 24-hour race for that car ever. Gotcha. Yes. Yeah. So there's definitely a difference of. Um, just comfort with uh, when it comes to just that uh, that chassis having miles under it. So yeah, um, yeah, uh, nothing really crazy to write home about. I think I, I think you're going to hear universal grumbling throughout the entire year about the difference of sound. It definitely sounds different. It sounds almost like there's a turbo in it, even though there isn't a turbo. Ooh. But yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. They 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 look good. So <laughs> they do look pretty rad. It's like if yeah. someone stuck a Lamborghini front onto an Acura rear and then just painted it yellow. Yeah, or, or a Honda Acura um, uh, NSX front end with a McLaren. Yeah, you, you know, I've there's been a lot of comparisons yeah. already. Like, you insert this because it looks like a generic mid engine. Yeah, car, yellow, which they a yellow all Ferrari. Do now. 
<laughs> yeah. Just on on that note as well, uh, Ford also suffered the same problems with their GT on the first 24-hour race it had as well. So they spent a lot of ta- time in the garage with, I think, also gearbox issues. So not definitely not unheard of at a track like Daytona. Um, finally, the race for the win in GTLM was between the two Porsches and the number 24 BMW, with the 24 actually prevailing to take their second Daytona in succession. Now, what... Like, I missed the very end of the race. I elected to go to sleep at 3.30 in the morning with three hours left in the race. So I missed the last stanza of the race. And it looked like from where I was watching that the Porsches had the upper hand. How did the BMW over overcome the, the pair of Porsches towards the end of the race? There was, uh, I think there was a fuel strategy or a pit stop strategy to get them out in front. But they they were just hanging on the entire time. Um, so the Porsches kind of fell back a little bit. I, I don't know if the Porsches changed tires. There was something where they, they were kind of off sequence with their tire rotation so that they double stinted. Um, something that effect and BMW had played it perfectly, either that they had, they got a safety car free um, with a, either a little over an hour to go or something like that. Yeah. Um, so they were in a, in a good position to basically cap, you know, to not worry about uh, tire fade. And it seemed like, the Porsches either had to then pit with tires or were suffering a little bit for pace in the middle part of their stint. And then they started to pick back up again. But by that time, the uh, but the BMW is too far ahead. But uh, BMW was sticking around the entire race. So it was definitely clear that, um, you know, if, if the Porsches could survive, uh, you know, the first 24 hours, that it was going to be them, BMW, you know, with them. And sparse to between, you know, could be corvette but i i mean the corvettes were never really there yeah okay um, in my opinion for most of the race yeah um the gap at the end of the race was 14 seconds and just having a bit of a look at some daily sports car reports uh it does seem that tire life was the question of the weekend uh bmw so they won last year's 24 hours basically we're going to say by chance, um, and that might be a little bit mean, but really that 12-minute running of green flag in the torrential rain was definitely like you had an equal chance of destroying your car or making up 50 positions. So um, I will, you know, you'd say that it was probably a bit of a chance victory. This one seemed a lot more consistent and a lot more on par. What are we What are we hoping for this BMW program? They pulled out of WEC competition. They are now just racing in IMSA. Yeah, what happens next? Oh, it's up to the BMW boardroom, but it, it definitely just seems that it's volatile if you're a motorsport or um, program that doesn't have a real goal or purpose. So, I mean, they they're uh, on the one hand, this you know I. I want to say that this means that they're going to keep racing uh, for this foreseeable future. But on the other hand, I could see them saying that they won the last two years and, you know, they might win Sebring. And if they win the championship this year, they'll do the Dodge thing and just bow out. So, mm, okay. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know what BMW want to do. And they said that they want to do hydrogen, you know, and is that still part of the, the plan, especially with this convergence? Uh, they haven't really been saying too much. I know that they might have done an interview about something and that they're interested. Yeah, whatever. But yeah I, yeah, I don't know what to expect from them, to be honest. To be honest, um, I, I, didn't even, I didn't even know if they know what to expect from themselves. <laughs> I think that's... Uh, they, sh- they should go to Le Mans. I mean, yeah. That's, that's annoying that they're not going. 
yeah, we'll, yeah, we we don't know at this stage what the GTE Pro class at Le Mans will look like. We'll probably find out a little more in the coming months, because um, I think last year we found out after the Super Sebring weekend, so the beginning of March. So we'll see what happens there with that. But on the whole, despite the the loss of Ford and the overall reduction in car count, GTLM still goes off. Oh, it it's extremely well. Um, regulated in terms of VOP. Um, mm. All the cars are really, really close. Uh, you can kind of tell which ones were not on the pace too much, and those coincidentally were the ones that didn't that had the least experience or were, were still kind of, in a sense, shaking down their equipment. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it could use an injection of some uh, extra cars. Yep. I, I don't know how that is ever done uh, still. And, I mean, there is that one rumor that we might, get another gtlm manufacturer back on the grid whether that is a previously existing one or a new one i don't know but that would be um, great i don't know i i still think the competition is really really high Mm. in gtlm regardless of uh of kind of the running order at the end and how many were entered yeah i agree gtlm is always always a party uh and yeah i i'm i'm sad that the the Porsches didn't win. But on the other hand, there was an Australian in the number 24 car. That one had uh, Chaz Moster in that. So I was very happy to see him take a Rolex. So good work, Chaz. <laughs> yeah, I mean, seriously, uh, it's hard hard to do there. So if you could just mm. get one your first outing and then... Yeah, His second I'm, outing. I got it. Second you, outing at uh, Daytona. Outing. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, he did race last year in the car with the very famous... Uh, paraplegic quad up. Uh, Zanotti. He raced in last year with the uh, BMW. Right, right. Yep. Oh yeah. Then they they broke that pin off because he put the wheel. Oh, that yeah. Was, that was that like, was sad. Oh, that that was like every sim racer's nightmare. <laughs> yeah. True. True. Uh, GTD was also a bit of a party. Um, but it was a kind of stretched out party. I guess the green flag running allowed teams with the quality drivers in that massive green flag period to really pull away from the field. And we ended up getting a much more stretched out GTD field than we have seen in years past. So we only saw two cars on the lead lap, two cars on the trailing lap, and three cars on the lap behind that. And then the rest of the field basically had problems. Uh, The winners in the end were the Formula Racing Lamborghini, the number 48 car, which if you didn't pick for... Uh, Fantasy WEC, you made a mistake because they were easily the class of the field throughout the entire race. Um, backed up by the GRT Magnus in their first outing in the uh, Lamborghini. So Lamborghini 1-2 and then Audi R8 of the WRT Speedstar Audi Sport team taking home third. Now, I found GTD... Like, while it was still action-packed in parts, it was very hard to track just simply because everything just spread out so much. I think by half race, you only had, like, four or five cars on the lead lap. So, yeah, what was your thoughts on the GTD race uh, while you were there trackside? Um, it was close. Um, I, I think with the still, I mean, we had diminished car counts for all the classes, but GTD still held theirs. They stayed lost, I think, a couple net lost maybe two or three but yeah again the competition was really high um we saw some teams come back we saw some driver lineups come back that were really really uh dominant before so and lo and behold they ended up winning so but um no i i think uh, watching the race kind of from the stands up high for the first hour and a half the gtd battles were 
just really, really close. Uh, but they were, you know, it, it did start to fan out. Um, you don't see the level of co- competition and um, just, you know, close deltas lap after lap of that on GTLM that you do see in GTD. GTD yep. is much more spread out. So, yeah, that oh, that feels just more of your typical GT3 race. And I think yeah. that felt a lot more like a pro-am, like, you know, I what I see GT, IGTC, you know, uh, event than anything else, really. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, interesting to note, though, that those with quote-unquote super silvers uh, did quite a bit of a better job than those with actual amateurs. So in the in the number 48 car, you have uh, your amateurs, Madison Snow, who got bumped back down to silver after taking a year off racing for being bumped up only by IMSA into the gold bracket, which saw him basically have to leave the team because there couldn't he couldn't run as a gold in, in the team. It just wouldn't have worked. Um, and then Corey Lewis, who was also a very, very good silver driver on the verge of being super silver. You know, they, they basically had the pace to burn when they needed it uh, because their amateur drivers were basically as good as pro drivers. Um, yeah, so you, the consistency in lap times from them really was what the, took them out to the head of the field. Uh, in some other cars, you know, where they've got actual, actual, win inverted commas, silver drivers, um, you could see them drop away a little bit. Is this a problem for the GTD class uh, that needs to be looked at more significantly? I mean, we've talked about Super Silvers in WEC competition. Uh, are we beginning to see the same thing happen in GTD and IMSA? Uh, yes. And whether this gets fixed by just uh, saying it's only bronze only, you know, that kind of mm. thing, that could be something, but... Um, is not in a win scenario here because they do have low G grid counts and, yeah. um, the GTD category two is losing while they're not losing, you know, as much over the years, they are still losing their overall car count. And, um, and when we, you know, over the years have also said, okay, well, if LMP two loses some, if DPI loses some GTD can support it, it's not supporting it. Um, the sprint rounds will kind of i think we'll see that a little bit of a boost but yeah i it's worrisome that we're not seeing this ecosystem kind of keep growing and mm. that we, we're not we're not seeing these teams stick around for a decade or two that we're seeing in europe and maybe even a little bit in asia and these other markets uh especially in australia with the bathers 12 hour like you're seeing these teams um even if they're not like homegrown or if they are, they're they're from these stables that are trying to support these races, and you're just not seeing that from US base if they're not in a pro category. It's just yeah. kind of like you've got to have a commercial flashy thing, or you're not racing in you know you're not racing yeah, yeah. In, you know sports cars. There's, there's not really any American team which is just the American team anymore, like a, a Wayne Taylor uh, in GTD. Um, I think the closest I mean, thing United Auto Sports, yeah, uh, Eurasia. I mean, yeah, G-Drive, like, like just uh, name one. Alex Alex Job Racing used to be that. You know, um, Flying Lizard used to be that. Uh, Stevenson Motorsports used to be that, and they've all closed doors for various reasons. So yeah, it's 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 a bit it's a bit sad that we're not seeing that at the top of gtd anymore but there were still some very interesting stories and some very good performances um i want to pick out first of all the black swan racing team in pappas's return to racing after his massive accident at the bathurst 12 hour last year um the team grabbing a fifth place was 
pretty good result, and I'm very, very happy for them. Um, any other results that you were impressed by over the weekend? Um, yeah, I mean, Ben Keating, that he almost turned into a meme, essentially, with uh, how much people were, were exclaiming his... Um, his glory, I guess. Uh, so, but beyond that, um, yeah, I would, I would have to say the, the drivers, I think Briscoe had some issues early on with some pace and kind of being a little bit wild on the, you know, behind the wheel, especially with warm up, warming up tires, but he managed a good stint. Most of the drivers number 10, you know, really do deserve a shout out. Um, but yeah, I, I would probably have to say Ben Keating. He, he was probably the sole standout driver. Um, for his, I mean, ignore how many different cars he drove throughout the race. Just focus on his performance in LMP2. And then you could even say in GTD, very, very solid and fantastic. Mm. And not to mention that he did two of them. So Yeah, 100%. Good job, Ben Keating. We're all very happy that you're a good bronze driver. Um, yep. What about, what about disappointments? Uh, I can think of a few, especially in GTD. Oh, uh, Aston Martin Racing, period. There you go. <laughs> yep. Uh, so for those who missed it, Aston Martin Racing entered two cars, um, one of which you could argue had a very decent chance to win, uh, and then both of them were out within the first quarter of the race. One of them one of them was taken out or was the cause of an accident with another Lamborghini. Um, uh, I think the second GRT Grasser Racing Team Lamborghini, where one of them was diving into the pits and the other one was trying to pass and they both just collected each other onto the infield which was very very weird incident um and then the other one was just the memeiest incident ever i think it was ross gunn at the wheel exiting the pits after a little bit of a repair just understeered into the pit wall and broke the car like that was it that was he just he just hit the pit wall and broke the car and they were out and it was just oh it was the dumbest incident that you could ever make at daytona yeah it was just so dumb (laughs) And the Aston Martin curse continues for some reason. Mm. I don't understand. It, it's I, I didn't I didn't think too much of it, but now look at the finishing order again, and and knowing what kind of went on through the race, yeah, I I don't understand. It and was those cars so should be dumb. should do well there. Like they're and I, the pace was there too. I mean, mm. for some of the uh, some parts of the weekend, they were at the top of the field. Yeah, oh, 100%. And they should have. Those, you know, those two driver lineups, you know, one of them had Pedro Lamy, Ross Gunn, Andrew Watson, and Matthias Lauda. That's basically three pros in right. that car. That's almost even four pros in that car. Um, and then the other car, Alex Ramirez, Roman DeAngelis, uh, I James, who doesn't ring a bell off the top of my head, and then Nicky Team. So, you know, those cars should be challenging for positions. But yeah, it was just two very dumb incidents um, which took them out. Um I want to say another disappointing uh, result, not necessarily for anything that the team did, but just in terms of a disappointing story overall. Um, the Gear Racing uh, GRT Lamborghini uh, was in a good position. This is the that was the all female lineup of Christina Nielsen, Catherine Legg, uh, Tatiana Calderon, and Rahel Frey. Uh, unfortunately, that car caught on fire uh, and was basically just relegated to the back of the field, uh, early on in the race, which was a real shame. Cause I was really hoping that they'd have a good outing, uh, in that GTD car. Caught oh, yeah. fire. Lamborghini that caught fire. God damn. Yeah. Wow. It's like, you've seen those YouTube videos before, haven't you? Yeah. Like every single one of them, which is just <laughs> literally all of them. Well, it would have been uh, it would have been something else. I think the memes would have been on overdrive if uh, the Magnus Lambo caught on fire. Oh, mate, that would have 
That would have just torn my heart apart. I'm pretty glad that they uh, shot, and it's uh, it's it's definitely worth a mention about uh, driver ratings when they finish second to a uh, a completely dominant driver lineup. Mm. I mean, I you can't ask for a better driver lineup than that. And they're clear championship favorites for this year. Uh, was that Paul Miller Racing or GRT? Uh, Magnus Paul Miller if, yeah. are they, if they're doing full season I think they are they would be doing full season that would probably be Snow and Sellers yet again so that wouldn't surprise me at all yeah cool so that was that was Daytona uh, any final comments that you had on Daytona um your second time attending uh you know long green flags did it make the race uh different did, did it feel different um yeah I mean I, I... I want to say that I didn't notice the lack of car count, uh, if I can put it that way. But there definitely was an aspect where it, you know, after the first four or five hours, it kind of had that feeling of like it was on hour 22, 23 with the amount of cars remaining yep, kind okay. of thing. It's almost like, if you know, like if Lamar started with 35, yep. 34 cars, kind of that kind of thing. We we're like, oh, man, that's a that's a high attrition race you do notice it a bit on track. Yeah, so, okay. but it was nice. I, I I mean, I did enjoy it. I'll pose you one, one question. I just want a yes or no answer for this. Uh, does extended green flag running make IMSA boring? No. Okay, cool. I, uh, I think maybe an eight and a half hour green flag running period does make IMSA boring, but that's just me. Um, I mean, it, I mean, it will make any race boring, but like, I mean, that's, that's the whole point of it. I mean, I, I don't want to say that IMSA's green flags are more boring than WC's green flags only because, I mean, then you're, you're look you're criticizing the product itself. Yeah. I mean, when, which then I'd say, yeah, I mean, WC has a better product because they have LMP one cars, not DPI cars. That's yeah. really the, main, the main difference. Then I'd say, then there's no issue. Then I think IMSA has better if they have the same stuff, but I don't know. I mean, yeah, there's definitely an aspect where it's a, you know what a almost a four mile track with 30 some odd cars racing around it uh for seven hours straight green flag running and yeah there's probably not a lot of contact nor spinning you know all all cars recovering all that stuff so there are the the elements of a boring race are all there so i can't disagree with you but yeah I don't know. I'm, yeah, I mean, like, it's like, that's, that's, like it's not that might that's, that might happen. You yeah, know? And, and it's not necessarily a slide against IMSA. Like, we've had boring, quote unquote, Le Mans races in the past. We've had boring Sebrings. We've had boring Bathurst twelve hours. Oh no, we haven't had boring Bathurst twelve hours. We've had boring IGTC races. So it's just every now and then you get a dud, which is fine. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty much it for Daytona. And I do want to just make a quick shout out to the guys in the voice chat overnight where we were just bantering about music with the race on in the background for like three hours. That was a lot of fun. And that's sometimes when the WC community is at its best, is when there is a race that's on that we're all just kind of keeping an eye on while we talk about other stuff. So thank you very much to the group in the voice chat at that moment. Uh, you guys know who you are. Um, and yeah, it was it was fun to sit around and banter for a little while. I, mean, I actually have haven't had a chance to do that in voice chat for a long time so yeah it was good fun you Excellent. should have you should have jumped into voice chat just given us some serenading v8s and v6s and flat sixes and all that sort of stuff oh man well you know <laughs> we'll we'll, uh, we'll try to do that sebring for you guys oh yes please baby um <laughs> okay we're gonna flip things we're gonna flip things around now Austin, you're gonna ask me questions now because we're gonna talk about the bathurst 12 hour Hey, uh, Mike, what's the uh, Bathurst 12-hour? 
Oh, the math is 12 hours. Great, is what it was. Um, wow. Yeah, that's all. Okay, goodbye, guys. That's the end of the podcast. Nah. <laughs> all right. Yeah, thanks for tuning in, guys. Nah. Um, it was it was crazy fun. It was just such such a different experience for me because this is the first time I'd done Bathurst as media as well um, compared to just going along as a fan uh, in years previous. So for one, it was very different not camping at the top of the mountain and actually having to travel to and from the track, even though it took like five minutes, it was just different. Two, uh, working alongside Stephen Kilby was a great, uh, great experience. Um, he's actually great fun. I The first time I met him a few years ago, I thought he was a little bit um, like at arm's length with things. Um, that was probably because I like ran into him twice and made him feel very uncomfortable being like, oh my God, Stephen, hi. Um, but yeah, working alongside him for the weekend was actually really, really a lot of fun. Um, and then, yeah, uh, being in the media center, tapping away, I wrote stupid amounts of, of content. Um, I think I tallied it up at the end. I wrote something like 11 and a half thousand words over the weekend. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of words, but yeah, no, it was, it was just an awesome weekend. Um, I had, yeah, I had a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, we could tell you had a lot of fun through your writing. So we were keeping up to date as much oh, as we could. Thank you. And uh, yeah, yeah, man. Uh, really happy you, uh, I get to read updates from you, man. I mean, uh, otherwise I would, I would be complaining a lot more probably uh, to whoever was typing that up unfairly, of course. <laughs> um, but uh, no, it, it's, um, it's kind of surreal, man, just to have uh, extra, extra people that, are with the community and especially uh, that I know that are uh, helping out and supplying some actual journalism to us. So yeah, surreal is the right word. Like I had like, it, it was so weird sitting in this, in this media center, like with, you know, radio one, three rows ahead of me, I could just walk up and be like, Hey, what's happening guys? You know, Hey Johnny. Hey, Handy. Hey Eve. How are you? How, how's life? Do you guys want coffees? I'm making coffees for everyone. And just like being, being there in that environment, not as a fan, but like as a colleague was just, it just felt surreal. And like, it, it took, I think, I think it was worse for me at the bend because I did the same thing at the bend. But at the bend, it was just like, ah, oh, there's so much happening all at once. I can't really process this. But at least with the Bathurst, because I'd done it once before, I was kind of more able to process it. But right. yeah, still, the, the feeling of surrealness was just, it was just crazy. Oh, much deserved. Much deserved. Thank and, you. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing more and have already heard some content from that escapade too. Mm. And, uh, talking to certain personalities in the sport that we, uh, I'm sure we would love to hear more from. So yeah, we all, crossed. we all appreciate that as well, man. Thank you. It was great fun. Just uh, like the entire event was just, I just had a big smile on my face. So it was, it was really good. Really, really good. How's that race? Um, race was good. Uh, it was, had a lot of long green flag running as well, but it did never felt like stagnant something was always happening there was people on different tire strategies and different fuel strategies i think the group m mercedes for a while was looking like even though it was offset from everyone looking like it could pop out on top um but we were actually missing a lot of cars from the the start grid that had entered simply because we had a lot of incidents prior to the race um so we had actually a record number of cars not make the start and uh, you know we say there's always one every year but you know, for five cars to miss the start because of damage was was kind of uh, kind of terrifying, and there were big accidents as well. Like, I'm not sure if you kept up with the accidents oh, that yeah, were happening, yeah. but that were huge accidents. Like 
out yeah. of this world. I'm uh, I'm disappointed in myself. I, I we, we said this before coming on, or I said this, mentioned it, that I didn't ask the question to GG and MP because I was going to put uh, speed uh, as a factor in terms of this year uh, with the GT3 cars. Uh, what, in their opinion, uh, you know, are they safe? Is it still okay? I mean, how do they feel speeds are with GT3 cars on the mountain? And uh, lo and behold, that was basically the talk of the entire weekend was pretty much any accident ended up being a spectacular one. Mm. Um, and it, uh, it, it kept exposing the track at weak points that we thought we addressed or got fixed. And it just kind of kept <laughs> compounding. But again, it's, we're running in that it's Bathurst. So you yeah. really can't change a whole lot of it, well, you know, it, to an extent. Right. Well, I would counter that by saying it's a track that actually punishes small mistakes. Like if you look at uh, if you look at Kirchhoff's incident, so this was the Aston Martin into the wall and qualifying, where it actually hit the wall at um, the metal grate and flipped along the wall. The reason that happened was because he was about three inches too wide on the right hand side um, and made contact with that first wall. If you're three inches too wide at the at Le Mans at Tertre Rouge or during the in the Porsche curves, or if you're three inches wide at Spa Francorchamps. You've got tarmac there to run into. At Bathurst, it's a concrete wall. And I think that's something that a lot of drivers, especially those drivers who were coming from, say, Daytona, where there's a lot more runoff, or who run at other FIA-rated events where there is, uh, you know, grade two or grade one tracks with carmac, uh, carmac, you know, car parks as runoff, um, there is that level of respect you need to have for the track and for the, the terrain. Um, and, you know, maybe there wasn't that level of respect from some of the GT3 drivers. Uh, and some of the accidents we saw were from people making small mistakes, pushing for something that wasn't there. I mean, I I feel like to one end that, uh, that yeah, the, you're definitely not wrong. But on the other hand, too, I mean, that that is kind of, you are always pushing the envelope, especially these days yeah. when you are trying to just you are trying to just set that pace, uh, especially, and you're just trying to get the ultimate pace out of the car and kind of hit that mark, and to just keep trying to get near it. Yeah, um, that's really crucial to get early on the weekend, and I just think that, that was the case. And you, just, it, drivers kept getting caught out, and mm. how some of these wrecks happen. I mean, the cars are just getting set up on the ragged edge uh, in terms of balance. I yeah. Mean, the Audi crashing mid race. That was, I mean, that was weird. I mean, he, he had an extremely loose setup. I mean, like yeah. he, he literally couldn't steer in. I've, I've had that done before I was draw. I was racing somebody, some random person said, and I racing. And it's like, that dude was basically just driving on the seat of his pants mm. and any like overcorrection or, or, you know, different uh, input that, it, you know, the setup was almost wasn't anticipating. You're just, spinning out that's exactly what it looked like yeah and so there was a reason for that and the reason for that was that the track had no pace in it and the and to compound the reason for that was it was bloody hot all weekend so you know in years past we've seen overcast track conditions we've seen uh you know clouds low temperatures sometimes even rain which is very weird for february um and the you know the track let me try that again the track lap record is like a 2016 um, this year, because it was 38 degrees the entire week leading into the event, 
it was there was just no pace in the circuit it was super greasy and there was the the rubber that was going down was just not staying and so that's why you saw these cars especially in qualifying uh have these big accidents because they were pushing for something that just wasn't there and no one seemed to realize that you couldn't go that far and get away with it 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 seemed that everyone wanted to take more out of the track than there was and like i've been to the the 12 hour for the past five years normally i'm up at mcphillamy park and you don't see any action up at mcphillamy park for the gt cars because they're all just so planted this year it seemed like every single car had an off at mcphillamy park and that's probably because that's the most loaded corner in the circuit and people were looking for pace that just wasn't there and people were expecting a bloodbath so to speak like i was talking to some of the other people in the media center after qualifying and they were like if this happens tomorrow we'll have like four cars finish the race and i'm like "Mm, they gotta they gotta sort their head out (laughs) before that and i think even kelvin vanderlinder said just like calm down just just calm down everyone yeah, so that's my I, thoughts I mean, on that. You, you almost couldn't, in, in, in mm. some respects, which is crazy to me that uh, that you it, it just kept ramping up to that extent, and that I mean, we had cars rolling over, we yeah. had cars leaving the track, we had cars hitting cars after they had made massive contact with walls. Like it was crazy. We had cars hitting kangaroos all weekend, <laughs> like. It was just nuts, man. I it just, was. <laughs> like, it was just kind of threw everything in. And then you had the threat of rain, which didn't happen, but you had like a rain, wind, dust storm for mm. the last two hours. But yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess why, how do the Nissans continue to shoot themselves in the foot? How is this possible? They, so, they seem to have like the second or third best car on the track every year. Yeah. The first Nissan went out in the first session of the weekend. So Josh Burden was behind the wheel, uh, set the fastest lap of the session, and with five minutes left, put it into the wall at Reed Park and broke the car. And so they were the top of the first session and then also out for the weekend, which was a a massive shame and disappointment because the other car had a lot of pace. And I think the thing with the Nissan is that it's so quick in a straight line that it means that even if it's slowing, it's off the pace around the top, the the car can recover that because Bathurst is kind of unique in the fact that you've got these two massive straights um, joining on to the, the mountain. Uh, so, yeah, they, they were in a good position and then the, the car ran out of brakes, I think, at the end of the race. It just, as the conditions changed towards the later part of the race, it just didn't seem to have the same outright pace that it did before. So, uh, yeah, not, not great for Nissan KCMG. And then, yeah, to to have to replace the brakes 13 14 minutes from the end it was just a bit of a mess um and it would have been it would have been good to see what uh like chio san and and burden could have done in the other car but yeah unfortunately out in the first session of the race you know bathurst chooses its victims yeah i mean the i think they had some in-race penalties too i it was just noted that they kept they kept battling back through mm. adversity and long pit stops and bad strategy and just kept passing, passing, passing cars. And it's just like, especially when it gets harder and harder to pass every year and the Nissan just simply don't have a problem ever of passing. Yeah. Um, you One would expect maybe them to stick at the front of the field. That way they don't have to keep doing that. Um, but, uh, but that's a yeah, qualify I mean, at the front, though. That's the thing. And they're not quick yeah. enough over the top to yeah. qualify at the front. Were you expecting um, the the European, or I would say the British invasion? Um, I mean, I, no. <laughs> yeah, 
Uh, I guess I'll leave it at that. Were you expecting the British invasion? uh, I was not expecting the British invasion. It was the biggest British invasion since 1788, which, for those who don't know, was when British colonization first happened in Australia. So... (laughs) Um, no, nah, yeah. it was, it, I honestly did not expect that pace from the McLarens, uh, especially. So the McLarens, we've had a McLaren 720S racing in the Australian GT series over the past year. It's been quick-ish, but been played with problems. Um, so I was not expecting the team to be actually, actually able to run the cars for the full 12 hours without issue. And on top of that, Ben Barnacote's first stint in that McLaren to, to barge his way through to the lead and then stretch away. was just unbelievable. Um, so I was, I was very, very well impressed with his efforts in particular in that car. Um, and then Codrich in the silver car, he set the fastest, well, he was in contention to set the fastest lap of the race. He set like a 2037 or something mental, um, when the pace just wasn't there. So, yeah, on on the McLaren side, very very impressed and very unexpected. Um, Bentley, on the other hand, they they seem to just find something on Sunday. Um, they had so many problems over the weekend. They they basically did like three full rebuilds on their cars. Um, I I think I think the the team manager got you know he got very annoyed seeing me because I was just basically in the Bentley garage all weekend just asking him what what was going on. Um, but yeah, for them to come through and perform as well as they did with both cars on the Sunday, especially after the number eight misqualifying and then started from the pit lane. Uh, I mean, admittedly, they did end up not finishing because of a puncture, but they, honestly, the Bentley Bentley were the most, probably the most deserved victory at Bathurst since, um, uh, since I don't know, since, since the McLaren in 2016. Um, it was just it was crazy what that team was able to put together. Um, but on the other hand, Aston Martin had an or- a horrible race, so it wasn't all good for the British marks. No, no, not at all. Uh, Aston Martin also having issues mm. at another uh, key race down the calendar. Um, <laughs> um, the uh... just so don't buy an Aston Martin is what we're saying, right? Although, although they did take <laughs> they did take a class podium, so. <sighs> I mean, yeah, 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 right. But I mean, this is with five or six classes and three are kind of redundant. Yeah. Uh, that's a different story. Yeah, I, I guess outside of that, how do you, uh, I don't know. I'm curious as an American because it just is weird to me that look at the Mark IIs. Um, mm. Didn't one catch fire? Yes, one caught fire in the pit lane twice. Um, okay. One didn't start the race because of a massive accident in qualifying where they tagged the stricken Mercedes AMG of Sam Shahin over Skyline and but almost left the track, which was terrifying. Um, luckily, that driver didn't suffer any injuries, Tyler Everingham, because um, that was an awful accident. And then the other one uh, had a suspension failure after hitting the wall at the cutting and then a suspension failure on the other side of the car for some unknown reason. Um, and then the last card had no problems and won by over a hundred laps in class. <laughs> <laughs> this is the um, biggest class victory in Bathurst twelve-hour history. Wow! I, and uh, a round of applause goes to them for uh, honestly not having any issues. But yeah, well, really, that was uh, how they won. How do you feel about the class? I mean, uh, like as a Australian, do you do you pay attention? Is it, is yeah. it like LMP two and Rolex twenty four kind of thing, or well, is it like the thing is that the Mark cars are a very uniquely Australian, right? It's a big V8 built into a kit car. Um, 
And they've been a staple of the 12 hour for the last 15 years or something like that. So they're, they're, they're definitely a crowd pleaser. They sound amazing. It's just, it's just ridiculous how, how meaty they sound. And they look really, really cool as well. It's a shame to see the invitational class and the, pardon me, the non GT3 classes get almost, you have to say almost forced out. Like, you know, GT4 had two entries and, you know, no one really paid attention to GT4. Um, Class B, which was Porsche Carrera Cup, which had a huge market in Australia, got switched to Super Trofeo, of which there was one car in Australia. Um, The Invitational Class, I I do like keeping an eye on it um, because it's where a lot of uh, a lot of younger drivers or people on the start of their career get opportunities. So, like, there was three or four different uh, like Super 2s, so the second tier of V8 supercars drivers in the, the Mark cars. So, you know, you keep tabs on them to see how they go. Um, and the Mark cars bring something special to the event. I would hate to see them not participate in the event. Um, unfortunately, this year, they just all had problems. Oh, gotcha. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I guess beyond that, uh, weather played a factor at the end. Um, what... How was it at the track? I mean, it, from from the camera angles and from the interviews and just like, I mean, really just observ- observations from uh, my comfy couch in the United States. It looked really gusty. Oh, dude. Uh, which, uh, yeah. And uh, that combined with heat. And then it really looked like almost sandstorm conditions at the end where it was just blowing dust everywhere. Dust oh, yeah. And dirt. So I'm sure this, the track had to be slick throughout the entire race. It was it was actually quite terrifying. Um. So I took a break from media duties just after half race distance um, and actually went outside and you don't really get an appreciation for how hot it was uh, on the TV cameras because it just looks like Australia. But getting outside, it was just basically immediate. It was like walking into a sauna. So the air was pretty humid as well and the wind was like blowing a gale there was flags on the main straight that were getting blown over because of how like aggressive the wind was um and so you think about all that uv on the track would just make it super slick the wind as well over the top of the mountain would have an effect on the cars and then the dust i was talking to a a local after the race and she said the dust storm sometimes gets so bad that visibility can be less than 10 meters so if we'd been hit by a dust storm you'd basically have to red flag the race because there was just no way that you'd be able to continue competing um Luckily, that didn't happen, um, and the the rain as well. What actually ended up happening was there was a storm that was heading in from the west um, that should have hit the track, but it actually split around the town of Bathurst. So it actually went either side of the mountain and then missed the town. And uh, like we had shots of people's gazebos getting blown over and tents getting blown over at the top of the mountain. The the trackside broadcast actually put a message in saying, like, up on all the screens saying, you may want to seek alternative shelter. A storm is coming. Um, and it was it was surreal uh, the way that the race finished. So the, the winning car crossed the line in full dry conditions at the end of the 12 hours. So, like, bone dry, nothing, not, nothing on the track. And then 30 seconds later, when second place came around, it was torrential rain, like absolutely flooded on the main straight. So it was just so surreal how it waited until that moment to actually just start pouring down. So the weather weather was nuts for the weekend. And yeah, it just, <laughs> no one knew what was happening at the end there. No one. Man. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, I, I was, I was, 
almost wanted to bet that there was going to be rain in it. Just the way that it was looking was kind of like it. And I, I don't know weather patterns too much for Australia to, to know anything yeah. regardless, but I could definitely see where it was coming it, from. Yeah. You, you, I mean, maybe you would get some rain, but I think by the end there too, that it was just the, there wasn't enough where that you could get a front where you would just dump anything. And I think even at the end when it started to rain, was there enough to really even coat the, the ground and really oh, yeah. lose the track grip? Oh, yeah. it would. If that rain had hit an hour and a half earlier, it would have been carnage because people would have been stuck on dry tires outside of the pit window and trying to get to the next point of getting to like getting to that last stop. Um, it, it literally, it dumped down. It was basically, it went from full dry to torrential within 30 seconds. Um, okay. yeah, so, and, and that rain was actually predicted to come in earlier in the day. It was predicted to come in at about two o'clock. So the race goes to quarter to six. So yeah, the fact that it missed until the very end was surprising, but I guess, I guess the, the, the mountain gods chose Bentley to win this year. Yeah. And, uh, shocking really, cause that's, uh, I just would not expect that from, uh, from Bentley. They, they usually, um, I, I guess I, I at the end of the day, would I would have to always say that they still haven't paid their dues yet, but this year they paid enough. And so. <laughs> yeah, and exactly right. This has been the first big win for the Bentley since arguably Le Mans. Like, it's been that long since they've done something notable in motorsports. I mean, could you say Pirelli World Challenge wins? Mm. I mean, I think that they raced there. I don't know if they won anything in they, the championship. They they've won they won a sprint cup British in GT? in oh they won a sprint cup in Blank Pain GT in like twenty fourteen or twenty fifteen. Um, Still, this is a major win. Yeah, exactly. This is by far the biggest thing that they've they've done, and. I talked to Maxime Soule after the race and he was basically in tears like because he's been racing here with the team for the last six years. So Bentley's first Bathurst was 2014 um, and th- he was in tears with what they've finally been able to achieve. Um, so it, it meant a lot to them and they did it. They did it the hard way. Like they had uh, a full engine change on the number seven car on Friday. They had a full front sensor loom change on the number eight car on Friday. So they were basically working on both cards until past midnight on Friday night. Then they had a brake failure on the number eight, which sent the car backwards into the chase on Saturday and did a full rear end rebuild on that car overnight. They finished at like four in the morning uh, on Sunday so they did it the hard way in uh, in getting their cars to the finish line, and by the time they got to the race, they were untouchable. Like the all three car drivers in the number seven car averaged less than a two two oh four in their lap times, in their top twenty lap times, and no other car could match that. So that's that was pretty pretty astonishing. It was less than a two oh four or less than a two oh five? It was less than it was less than a something, and it was quite a lot better than everyone else. Okay, how was your assessment of some of the uh, Aussie drivers or legends? Uh, your expectations of who you thought was going to be up there: Lowndes, Van Gisbergen, that kind of thing. Yep. Some of the V8 uh, drivers, or I'm sorry, supercars drivers. Yeah, um, I think it goes to show how much the international quality of this event is uh, is going when the likes of, you know, our Australian heroes are not really always at the head of the field. 
Um, so the, the number triple eight car did end up getting onto the podium, I think after the post-race penalty for group M. So that was Gisberg and Winkup and Maxi Gertz. Uh, so they, you know, they were not really ever challenging for the lead, but always there or thereabouts. So I, you know, that was probably what I was, I was expecting them to maybe do a little better. Um, but they were they were probably the best of the Australians come race day because Matt Campbell and the the absolute racing car didn't really seem to have the pace as the track evolved. Um, you know, Lowndes apparently the, well the the El Bamba Motorsport car that Lowndes was in was having brake troubles, so they actually lost two laps because of that. And then apart from that, they were super quick. And then Chaz Mostert and, and the BMW they had a torrid race. They hit a kangaroo under safety car, and then it just like continually broke the car with heating issues. So it, I, I guess it goes to show for the Australians that there are quality drivers around the world that we only get to see once a year. But, um, you know, there, there is still quality in our Australian drivers to go up and challenge them. Um, I would have actually been very interested to see how the number 777 car, which had... Um, the Shaheen brothers who own and operate the Bend, as well as uh, Nick Cassidy and uh, Anton Di Pasquale, who's one of the supercars drivers. It was Nick Foster, sorry, and Anton Di Pasquale. Um, Di Pasquale set like the second fastest lap on Friday behind Shane Van Gisbergen, and that car could have easily been in the shootout, uh, despite being the older spec car and the Pro-Am car, um, had it not had its issue uh, getting crashed into the wall at Skyline. So, yeah, it was... I don't want to say it was a disappointment in, from the Australian contingent, um, but I guess if a Bentley hadn't won, we would have been more disappointed that the Australians didn't do well, um, but because the Bentley won and they're kind of like the adopted team now for, for a lot of people um, because of the way that they go about things, uh, you know, that took a little bit of the, the pain away, so to speak. Hmm. Um, biggest disappointment for Bathurst 12R for you? Ooh, um... I don't know. Uh, no, this doesn't have to be drivers. It doesn't have to be cars. It doesn't have to be teams. It could be the race itself. Anything? No, the race itself was great. That stands out. I don't know. There wasn't really too much disappointment. I think the the Nissan crashing out was disappointing. Uh, I think that's my maybe just a little bit of inexperience on on Burden's part for that. I think the reaction to some of the crashes was disappointing, and I think maybe maybe the reaction to specifically the Shaheen crash um, where. Uh, where, where there was a clip posted online which was broadcast on the stream um which basically then invited a a bunch of uh, aggression towards the marshalling at the top of the mountain um and i think that was maybe the most disappointing thing for me to see see that sort of thing like okay there was there was definitely some validity to the complaints um so the the tldr if you haven't seen it is that when shaheen went into the wall um there was a big puff of dust and you couldn't really see through it and the marshals didn't immediately put out a yellow flag um which you know having been a track marshal before you kind of the 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 thing that you get told as a track marshal is don't put out a yellow unless you have to and unless you can clearly see that it's a yellow. So the, the only thing I can think of is maybe they've heard contact and not been able to see it through the dust. Um, but that was a little disappointing, not just the incident itself, but the way the wider community reacted to it. And it kind of has continued a trend of, 
I don't want to say questionable marshalling at the 12 hour because that's, you know, not really fair to say, but, but high profile incidents involving marshals at the 12 hour, um, you know, last year we had the car crash into the, the chase, uh, Tim Pappas's black swan car. And then people from the, from the crowd jumped the fence and, you know, put the extinct, extinguish fires, which was an entire thing, uh, which, you know, arguably probably shouldn't have happened. And then a few years ago, we had that big crash at the top of the mountain, which red flagged the event. And it, it kind of, yeah, I don't, I don't really know where I'm going with this, but yeah, it, it's not an accurate or fair representation of the quality of marshalling in this country to focus in on those three events, even though they were in such a high profile event. It's like, you know, when crashed, uh, crashed a Maldonado here, there I go, when, when Maldonado crashed at, uh, at Le Mans and everyone was like, ah, crashed at lol, you know, completely ignoring the context of him doing an absolutely fantastic job throughout the re- entire season in that LMP2 car. It's, it's not an accurate representation of what normally goes on. So I think that's my biggest disappointment. Yeah. Uh, and, for sure, the the end result doesn't necessarily indicate all the effort that might have gone in, even yeah. if the result was lackluster. For sure, yeah, and like on top of that as well, the twelve hour is probably one of the hardest events in Australia to marshal. Like they they basically run it with a skeleton crew, not because uh like not. It's, it's a very difficult event, A, to get to. So Bathurst isn't necessarily the easiest place to get to. You kind of have to get into Sydney and then drive out to Bathurst, um, which is like three hours. It's also the first week of school. Uh, so that so for a lot of people, that would mean, you know, taking care of kids and getting them organized. You can't really duck across the other side of the country or even three hours away in order to do this event. The weather was a massive factor across the weekend. So can you imagine, you know, standing out in the heat uh, for 12 hours a day in 34 degrees, 35 degrees heat and the humidity. On top of that, you don't really get that much creature comforts. There's not a lot of breaks because you're running with a skeleton crew. It's just a very, very hard event to marshal. And I mean, I've, I've been invited to marshal at the 12 hour and declined because I don't don't want to to put that strain on myself and have that responsibility for myself. And it's, yeah, it's not an easy event to, to marshal and you know, the fact that we have, while we have some incidents that uh, a lot of the time fly under the radar is, is actually a very, very good thing. But the, you know, the big ones that people focus on are where, you know, marshals have made mistakes or there's, you know, haven't reacted as quickly as they should. Um, but you know, like the point prior, um, around that corner at McPhillamy, when one of the Audis went off, you could see the yellow flag go out before the car had even hit the wall. So, you know, there's, there's quality in, in those martial points points as well. It's just, yeah, it's just one of those things that, you know, these people are volunteers and they're braving the weather and braving the conditions and braving fatigue in order to allow these events to continue. So that should be celebrated even when, you know, things occasionally go wrong. Um, okay, so lastly for me, uh, who had drive of the race? Ooh, drive of the race. Um, I kind of want to say Ben Barnacote. I kind of want to say his stints at the front of the race were the best of the race. Uh, even at the end as well, he was he was quite good. Um, but the the oh, it's there's there's so many good things that happened throughout that race that really like really should have been celebrated. So like you know Codrich's stint at the very end of the race and the the silver winning car, you know that was one of the best stints of the race and it happened right at the very end. But 
you really have to say Gunon and Sule, uh, like bringing the car home uh, in that last stint, you know, with the puncture as well, they got a puncture about an hour out from the finish and somehow managed to turn that into a good thing to get on a better pit strategy. It was, I, I think you have to, you have to give it to the Bentley team because there's, there hasn't been a more deserved result in motorsports since, I don't know, since Toyota won Le Mans. Yeah. I mean, they, they just, they weathered, I mean, they, that, entire seven crew just weathered everything i mean they just mm. um when safety cars came out they basically stuck with what would be just an average driver stint length you know they when they when they boxed they they did have some fortune uh when it came to when they pitted uh at certain points they weren't really hamstrung by certain safety cars that came out so but um, I mean, yeah, the entire effort for that team was Sterling throughout mm. and uh, the race. Uh, I mean, and that's really what you needed. Um, and we've seen them in years past have that pace that we thought, OK, they should be there. And they just either by shooting themselves in the foot or uh, things out of their control just weren't there this mm. year, really kind of they found it um, and were able to just kind of maintain it throughout the entire race. Yeah, and, you know, me and Chris kind of wrote them off before the start, saying, you know, something always happens to them. And you could argue that something did happen to them. They had a puncture, uh, you know, the eight car had a puncture, which, you know, put them out of the race because they were stuck facing backwards in the S's. And then the seven car had a puncture on Conrad Strait, and Gunon managed to drag that car to the finish. So something did happen, but they, they got through it. And I think that's that's the most important thing is that this time they got through it and they they closed out the win. And that was that was super impressive. Um, what about you? What do you reckon is the... the First off, we'll go the biggest... Uh, like the best stint of the race, the best driver of the race. And then any disappointments you had? Because I thought of another one. I mean, Dominic Story put in some pretty awesome stints for the, uh, for the 59... Uh, the number eight, the silver uh, yep. uh, class uh, McLaren. Uh, so he definitely gets a, an honorable mention and a head nod there. Um, but I, I, I kind of alluded to it earlier. I almost want to just award uh, a lot of it to the, just the number seven team itself, the driver lineup. Um, all of them really just reacted when they needed to. And they put in stints when they, you know, they, they put in the right amount of stints Um and they didn't flounder when it came to uh, crucial moments where they kind of need to get their head down and push. Um, and, uh, you know, opposite of last year, they didn't shoot themselves in the foot. Mm. They didn't create uh, their own night, you know, demons, which you could almost say that they, they could have just because of how many times they were, have been in this position. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, there's, there were some really, really good stints um, from a bunch of drivers. Um Especially, yeah, considering, um, I mean, Sule too. I thought he did a really, well, a really good job, um, especially handling. I think he was the driver that uh, handled the puncture. Um, no, it that... would have been Gunon. It would have been Gunon who Gunon. had the puncture. Yeah. But Sule, after after that uh, last safety car period to recover the other Bentley, it was Sule who put the hammer down and broke the rest of the field uh, because it was. Uh, Maxi Gertz on old tires that acted like a bit of the cork in the bottle. So Sule just managed to stream ahead and put the put the race the stint in to really break the back of the field. And I think that's the moment where you could see everyone go, "Oh, we've got this. We like it's in our hands. We just need to get to the finish." And yeah, and that that they did. 
all in all, though, great race. I mean, mm. satisfying win. I, I was absolutely pleased beyond belief just to see them win it. And uh, I, I, too, thought something was going to go wrong even at the end of it. Um, and I'm sure that they were listening to all kinds of creaks, especially after that puncture. And yeah. thinking, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. But the, uh, the tension, it was awesome. The, yeah, the tension around the track with the weather setting in was just like, oh, if this if, if this weather comes, it could change everything. But is the weather going to come? I don't know. Is it, it could change everything. Yeah, it was really, really cool. What about disappointments? Do you have any disappointments? The uh, Audi not being able to kind of keep any of their uh, front-running cars um, in, in contention, yeah. uh, just having issues left and right with them. Um, I thought they, as a whole, um, they had a team effort that was real, that was high caliber and had a shot of winning it with like multiple cars, which you know, outside of a specific good team with all the other makes, you kind of say there was only one team that I was looking for from other ones. So mm. that's probably been my disappointment. I mean, it's not really a team. It's more of a manufacturer, but they came in there going like, we treat this seriously. We want to win this. We we are here to, you know, give a professional effort for this outing. And they kind of came up completely with nothing yeah um and, and nothing even in contention with like three to four hours to go either so yeah it all it all fell apart for the artists that was that was my disappointment as well the other, other one that i thought of um like first of all tanda's accident uh we made mention of it just was weird from start to finish car just got loose where it shouldn't have and almost took out dries vantor as well like it was millimeters uh-huh. between the Barely two yeah um and then the tire issue and the engine issue like within five minutes of each other it was it just kind of just all fell apart for audi all at once um so yeah i'd say that was a disappointment as well but yeah what now uh, this is a question i wanted to ask you uh as an international viewer what did you think of the broadcast product of the event because this is something like the 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 supercars tv who do the the media side or like the production side of the the event um that's or you wouldn't call that standard, but you know that's their bath- Bathurst quality. So they know how to make this track look good, um, and they go go you know to the full nine yards in order to do everything in their power to make it a good broadcast. Now, what what did you think as an international viewer of the broadcast of the event? Um, it is a lot of pomp and circumstance that I kind of have come to understand from Australian TV. It, it, it's kind of an American light feel, um, like where I would be watching NFL or baseball or basketball, something like that, where there's like, I don't know, like the gravitas to it yeah. and, or it feels like watching the Daytona 500 when it comes to like, everybody's just so almost super lots of energy. Like this is the greatest thing I have ever seen in my entire life. And like you could tell that it's that is definitely like a thing with that. And I think, you know, as an American, it definitely reminds me of like yesteryear where you had that enthusiasm and that kind of like implication of like, yeah, a decent chunk of the uh population, local population that we're broadcasting this to is tuned in and watching this and wants to see a good product. So there's that effort of delivering to a larger audience. Mm. So you, I get that from the overall broadcast. Um, I, I love it. The way that they do it is that they still have like almost an international feed that rolls all, all along through the entire thing. And they just kind of jump back in and out of the local TV broadcasting in between ads. So the international feed still has a well, well, well-informed commentary that is still rolling through even when the local TV stations are doing ads. So that is done unlike any other international-based one that I know of, maybe outside of Le Mans, but yep. um, 
yeah i don't know from uh beyond that it's uh yeah it it's it's got the the, the typical like you know segments where it talks to drivers not at the track and does all this stuff talks yeah. to the wives and talks to the relatives and talks to the you know the all the extra the, stuff right exactly and it's a lot so mm-hmm. but hey um i don't know I, n- I never really have an issue with it altogether Gee. um so it's it's usually really well done like i in i've kind of come to expect it to be pretty well done and it does feel that way so cool yeah, that's, I don't know. that's really cool to hear nothing to complain about yeah because that's like our our standard um uh, especially for bathurst um like that's that's the the lengths that the the broadcast media goes to and um it was very funny uh listening to some of the internationals like i was talking to steven um when chad nalon brought out the strategy wall on uh on the on the screen and just like flicked through everyone's different strategies and and steven said to me was like is there anything that tv can't do <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that, that's 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 cool that you know our our broadcast standards is up there with you know uh with what people expect and what people are enjoying from the event which is cool um i mean that's just a result of interest too so mm, i mean exactly. I, I think I, I i don't know it definitely feels like in australia there is you know there obviously is you you've got your other sports that definitely draw more um universal interest but motorsport is still on the top whatever priority when it comes to sports for the average sports fan in australia than it Mm. is i would say almost anywhere else uk included um like it still has its own kind of car lover uh culture yeah where which is still mainstream that i would see in any other region and i think that it it shows especially with bathurst 12 hour 12 hour and the thousand mile uh or a thousand kilometer, kilometer Jeez, race. jesus excuse me jesus. excuse me that would be nuts I would, <laughs> I would, I would sign up for that. uh but yeah it's uh no it's it's fantastic um and i don't know <laughs> like I, I i wish we could we could have that more often at more tracks but yeah and it is it is a it is a bathurst thing as well like we have this saying in australia you know bathurst is the other race that stops the nation because the first one is the melbourne cup which is a horse race um so yeah it is people that don't normally care about motorsports care about bathurst which is really really cool uh so yeah i think that's 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 everything maybe with bathurst um a few other important notes it was a distance record which was cool 314 laps which equates to something like oh let me do some quick maths uh, like 1,960 kilometers or something like that in 12 hours, which is pretty crazy. Um, on top of that as well, the International GT Challenge, Intercontinental GT Challenge, donated $5 per lap for every lap completed by the IGTC full season cars to uh, the local Lions Club um, for bushfire relief. So that raised something like $25,000, which was then matched by Motor Active Australia, which are behind brands such as Liquid Molly and Megwires and all those other fun stuff. So that raised uh, over $50,000 for the bushfire relief. And then on top of that, there was collections at the track, plus uh, Bentley sold, did an impromptu sale of all of their uh, parts from the number eight that came off the car, um, which ended up raising something like uh, $74,000 uh, for the bushfire relief. So I was very, very happy to hear that. And thank you to everyone who was involved in those donations. Yeah, that was, that was really, really cool. Um, and I think a lot of people would have seen the sort of scarring between Sydney and Bathurst. And I took some photos and I'll share some of those photos maybe at some point. 
Um, but yeah, it was kind of nuts uh, to see the the sort of uh, devastation as we went between the two cities. Finally, you, hear that yeah. you have a lot of that though too. That there's a lot of support, especially mm. I think I mean Asian monsters raised a bunch of money too when yep. they were at the bend uh, for firefighter relief as well. So. And I mean, even some individual team efforts uh, yeah. for linking with some of these donations and uh, and getting money and relief to those that count. So yeah, honestly, the the response from the local and international community, not just in sports cars, but just everyone, has just been outstanding, and uh, it has filled my heart with warmth to see so many people take a take a position, take a stand, and help um towards the the bushfire relief that has been uh yeah devastating this country for the past few months um but very very happy to report that it that i think now all fires thanks to some heavy rainfall are now under control so that's that's uh honestly amazing so big ups to everyone involved for that we didn't even actually talk about the full results from Bathurst. So quickly, number seven Bentley and Sport one, six, uh, number sixty McLaren, uh, fifty nine Racing came second. Triple eight Mercedes third. The first of the nine elevens came in fourth, and then the Craft Bamboo uh, Black Falcon Mercedes AMG rounded out the top five. Uh, Silver class was won by the fifty nine Racing McLaren, uh, which you made mention of, and the Pro Am class was won by Grove Motorsport, uh, who have now, who with Stephen Grove have now equaled the most number of class wins at the Bathurst twelve hour with five. Um, so that was uh, that's a pretty cool stat to to jump in on as well. Cool to see Grove doing well uh, in anything that he drives at the moment. Now, finally, uh, Circuit of the Americas this weekend. Uh, are you excited for two races in the WEC in America? Uh, it uh, it can't hurt. <laughs> I'm not going to be at one of them. I wish I could go to Dakota, but uh, yeah. Um, no, it's uh, the U.S. is a big market, so um, I would have liked to see this go to Europe if possible, but I don't think that was really in the cards, and yeah. uh, Kyle Ami was probably not in it as well, so this is probably the next best bet. Yeah, I don't know. There's, there's, uh, Coda is, uh, is Coda, and um, I'm sure we're gonna hear some obnoxious stories about fans not really getting a like a logical experience at uh, Coda. But yep. hey, um, it's more motorsport than North America, so I'm not gonna complain. Noise. That sounds pretty good. Um, we do have a few entry list changes. Um, first off, the neither Janetta is making the trip to Coda. Um, the team has reported that they needed more time to break down and rebuild the cars after Bahrain. Uh, so they won't be making the trip over, but they will be at Sebring. Um, so it is a three-car P1 field featuring both Toyota hybrids at maximum handicap and then the Rebellion at half handicap, basically. Yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Um, <laughs> when is the season over? Is the twenty twenty can start? <laughs> Oof, yeah, fair enough. I don't know. I mean, you're not going to get any positive, even if even if it is, if you could spin it in a positive, you can spin it negative. I, I don't know. I mean, Janetta should be racing here, but I understand why they're not. Um, regulations really for privateers are not really encouraging outside of you get to race one more extra year. And then figure something out, um, which for them is a pretty tall hurdle, mm. um, you know, beyond Glickenhouse's waivers and, you know, whatever by Coles is going to produce, like, you know, 
yeah by and, Coles is, is is sort of playing by the rules and I, I just don't see where Janetta or or what was rebellion or smp or br1 how that could have been mod you know molded into something that would have actually fit in regulations yeah i just don't see it exactly so yeah and it looks like Janetta are going to be the only grandfather p1 chassis if they commit to it because rebellion have announced that they are pulling out of all motorsports. So we'll have a bit more of a discussion on that again when we have a bit more time to process things properly. But yeah, P1 privateers just just don't don't look good at the moment. Um, so yeah, uh, P1 is just going to be Toyota's and Rebellion. Um, yeah, I wish Rebellion should have good pace, so hmm. we'll just see if they can maintain it throughout the rest of the race. Fingers crossed. Uh, P2 sees an additional entry... Uh, from Dragon Speed, uh, which has not yet had listed drivers, um, but you would expect that to be probably Heinrich Hedman and uh, the associated crew um, with that one. Uh, what else is new on the entry list? Corvette Racing are uh, jumping into the twelve. Hour, uh, sorry, the six hours of Coda with uh, one of their new C8s, with Jan Magnussen returning to the team alongside Mike Rockenfeller. Um, how do we see that going against the WEC GTE Pro field? Um, that should be super off the pace. Okay. Oh, wow. Not even, no no messing about with that one. Uh, that usually is what happens when non-standard uh, uh, entries uh, gain entry. They just don't have any pace unless they are, they are matching it already existing in racing uh, OEM. It's just the BOP doesn't do them any favors ever, and um, and or the the balance that they need with the BOP tables given to them by the ACO are just too difficult to jump in and be competitive with without needing some warm ups. So, yeah, I, I just don't see them doing anything of note unless the other GT pros have issues and or rain is a factor. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, and on that note, you actually raise a very, very good point. When was the last time we saw a brand new car come to the series and perform? Yeah, that's just like, not, not going to happen. It was Porsche, right? Porsche was the last one who really did that. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, again, I, it's Porsche. I just they're, exactly they're, that's that's just its own thing. That, that's just <laughs> what they do. Um, finally, no changes. It looks like in GTE M, we are again waiting on the revolving door of drivers from Dempsey Proton number eighty-eight to get sorted out. Otherwise, the there was major news during the week that Ferrari got their win from Shanghai reinstated. So there's been a bit of a jumble about in the GTE Pro Championships. Now it's Ferrari number fifty-one and number 95 Aston Martin at the head of the championship so uh important to keep an eye on that one uh any any predictions that you want to make for this event upcoming at Coda um I think Rebellion win ooh um, ooh, ooh okay yeah, I mean why not uh <laughs> I, I think the track doesn't suit them as well I think it suits Toyota better but uh those Toyotas are pretty much as heavy as they possibly can be yep um and uh, yeah, I just think uh, Rebellion had uh, had issues with Janetta early in the race with Bahrain, so that really stymied their potential effort to win that race. So I, I, I've just got to imagine that they can find another way to win. Um, I think Sebring is a whole other uh, you know uh, task, I guess, for them. But I think they can win uh, here at Coda. Outside of that, um, Lalan P2 is a complete crapshoot, which I appreciate. Brilliant, um, I love it. GTE Pro, I'll say AF Corsa, even though I kind of feel like Porsche should win it. Okay. Um, and then GTE Am, I'll go Porsche, one of the Porsche teams as well. 
But those Aston Martins are quick. I just don't know if they're going to be quick enough uh, around what Coda is, you know, plays into certain strengths for. And yeah. I just don't know if that's Aston Martins. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, Porsche have traditionally been very, very good here. I remember, I think it was the first race that they had at Coda. Um, they were basically 1-2 from start to finish and never looked like getting challenged. So I'll probably jump in with the Porsches as well. Uh, yeah, LMP2 is great at the moment because no one has any idea what's going on. But I'll probably put my money behind the United Autosports car. Uh, Hanson Albuquerque and Paul Resta. I reckon they're going to be in with a shot. And then, yeah, GTEM. Uh, you could basically choose almost anyone and have a shot at it. Uh, race threads will be up on RSHWEC over this weekend. Also on RSHWEC this weekend is the Asian Le Mans Series finale in Buriram. Um, if you haven't been watching Asian Le Mans Series, you should definitely catch up on it because it's been an absolutely mad series. Um, just so many changes and incidents and messy, messy stuff, but in the best way possible. So that's on this weekend. Um, and I'm going to be missing all of it because I'm going to be trackside at the Adelaide 500 uh, doing some more marshalling. So enjoy that, guys. <laughs> boop, boop. Yeah. Yeah, finally. Thank you very much, Cookie. Thank you very much, Austin, um, for joining me this evening. It's very late for you now, so I'm going to let you go. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate it. <laughs> it's, nope. it's it's eventually cooling off here, even though it's uh, it's almost rolling up to midnight. God, man, <laughs> AC would be super helpful these days in Florida, but... Is what it is. Isn't it the middle of winter there still? Yeah, well, I mean, something, 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 something. Okay, something, but, something. Uh, you know, be, beyond that, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's not out of the ordinary to uh, to see temps around here, but, uh, man, I, we just don't have a winter anymore. Damn, that sounds a little crap. Um, actually, I, don't, I wouldn't mind that. I hate winter, so I hate being cold. And give me more summer, hey. baby. Yeah, I mean, yeah, give me some nice breezes, though. Cool, cool it off, but beyond mm. that, yeah. it it. Hey, all I know is it's almost race season, so Hell that's how I usually yes. That's the best type of season. Um, and finally, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Um, I think this is actually episode 99 of Endurance Chat. Uh, I have to go back and tally up the first two seasons, which have been lost into the ether and see where I can find numbers on that. But I'm pretty sure this is episode 99. So thank you for sticking with us for 99 episodes. And thank you very much, Austin, for being a part of this for somewhere around 99 episodes. Well, it's been a pleasure kind of hanging out with you throughout the start to finish. Well, not finish, but start throughout this uh, journey. It's been fun. Thank Uh, you. We got a few more. Yes, well, we should. Of course, we've got a few more. We're not giving this up anytime soon. No matter how difficult it is to schedule these episodes, <laughs> <laughs> we'll figure. We'll find a way. And on that note, thank you very much for listening. I've been Marcus Alvaro. Peace out, Gazoo! Welcome er, to the Life of Endurance chat. Welcome to the Life of Endurance chat. I am Life. This is Welcome. And we are live from Endurance chat. I'm Endurance. This is chat. What's up, chat? What's going on? What's chat? going on?